Well, I wonder if someone entrusted you this morning with a couple million dollars to invest, what would you do? A couple million dollars to invest, what would you do? Perhaps invest in real estate? I know as one looking to buy a home, I can attest to the fact that real estate prices are going up. It might look like a, a good investment. And yet it wasn't too long ago, if we think back, when the housing market was in a tailspin and ne- nearly half the houses nationwide were upside down. What about the stock market? You know, the stock market, it seems also to be recovering nicely, averaging about 12.5% per year over the last five years. And yet, if we think back just a number of years prior, back in 08, that market was down 58%. All right, what about gold then? Gold seems very tangible, very safe. It's not paper money, like something you can hold on to. And yet, if you follow the price of gold, you know that gold per ounce is down about 30% from its 2011 highs. Okay, well, if not that, what about a hedge fund? Well, there is that guy, Bernie Madoff, right, who ran off with $50 billion or so in people's money. Then you begin to think, you know, listen, a couple million dollars, that is a lot of money. So why take the risk? You know, stock market's inherently risky. You know, I'll just stick it in a bank. I'll, I'll earn some interest. Then you go to the bank and realize, man, the bank's offering you like 1% on a savings account. And you remember that it wasn't too long ago that banks were folding about as fast as the Golden State Warriors. And I'm a Warriors fan. This has been hard to watch. All right, so what do you do? Well, you go for the proverbial mattress, don't you? That's what you do. A couple million dollars, why risk it? Just put it someplace safe. I recognize that may seem like, that may seem obvious to some of you. It may seem crazy that we would have so much money to invest. But as I've often heard, you know, it's not return on principle. It's return of principle. We just want our money back. And as crazy as maybe that question sounds, you know, a couple million dollars, I'd, I'd never have that money to invest. I think we've got to stop for a moment. And have you ever considered? Have you considered that as a follower of Christ, Jesus has entrusted you with an enormous sum, and he's called you to be a steward of that trust? And if that's true, if you're to be a steward of the enormous wealth of the gospel and the promises and the privileges that the gospel entails, if you're a steward of that trust, what is that stewardship supposed to look like? Does God have any return expectations of you and of me? If so, what are they? Am I meeting them? More importantly, what does it say about me if I don't meet them? Well, to help us answer some of these questions, I want us to turn again this morning to the parables. We're going to be thinking this morning about the parable of the talents from Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seat back before you, I think you can find it on page 830. Page 830. And if you're new to a Bible, maybe you're just visiting us and, and not traditionally in a, in a church or not familiar with the Bible, those bold numbers are the chapter numbers. Those little small superscript numbers are the verse numbers. All right, so turn with me, Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14, and I'll I'll begin reading there. For it, and here Jesus is referring to the kingdom of heaven, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants 
and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. Then his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, so there's our parable. We have three servants entrusted with their master's wealth. Right? One receiving five talents, one two talents, and one one. Each, notice verse 15, each according to their ability. Now, this word talent tends to confuse us because we hear that word talent and we immediately think of shows like America's Got Talent, right, or The Voice. We think of talent and we think of, of skill and of abilities. But in the Greco-Roman world of the first century, a talent was merely a unit of measurement. It was about 60 to 80 pounds of, of some precious gold or silver. Your Bible likely has a footnote that says a single talent was worth roughly 20 years' wages for the average laborer. So if we think about it in sort of current U.S. dollars, one talent might be something close to $600,000, right? Two talents getting close to one and a quarter million. Three talents, we're starting to, or five talents rather, we're starting to get up to close to three million dollars, right? These are large sums of money that the master is entrusting to those servants. And that's because in the first century world, servants, often very educated, professionally trained, not so much the servants that we might think of in 18th or 19th century culture. And now these first two servants, we notice that they're very enterprising folk, 
right? They go out at once. They went out at once, verse 16. They invested, they put the money to work, undoubtedly taking some risks. And in the end, both managed to double their charge, right? Maybe they were early descendants of the Bader clan. I don't know. But that last fellow, notice, notice that last fellow. He looks, you might even say he's the more conservative of all the servants. You might even call that guy prudent because he recognizes, you know, investing and trading, those are, those are dangerous games. All it takes, you know, the Mediterranean is a surprise storm, which would come often. Maybe some pirates, a common problem in the first century. And all of that sum would be lost wealth gone forever. And it's not like banks in the first century were covered by FDIC insurance. There are no government bailouts. You know, it's gone, it's gone. No insurance to appeal to. And so that third servant takes our sort of mattress approach, right? He buries it. And if you look back in the Old Testament, burial is a respectable way for safekeeping. And then verse 19, we see that after a long time, after a long time, the master comes back and he settles his accounts. It's, you might say it's the performance review. It's, it's the reckoning. And the first two who doubled their charge receive that wonderful commendation, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. Both, he says, have been faithful over a little, which just suggests how much wealth this master actually had. And he entrusts them with even more. And that expression, enter into the joy of your master, that's a gracious invitation the master is giving them to partake of all of his wealth and of all of his blessings. It's like he's saying, listen, my Italian villa, it's yours. Here are the keys to my Porsche. Just give him my name down at the country club, right? Life is looking up for these first two servants. But then we come to that third servant, you know, that prudent mattress approach, the guy who buried his talent. And here the story reaches a climax, right? What's going to happen with this guy? What will the master say? True, I mean, the guy didn't earn a positive return, but he didn't lose his master's money. His master's not necessarily any worse off. And yet instead of commending him for this you know, prudent return of principle approach, he rebukes him in verse 26, right? He calls him wicked. He calls the servant slothful. He then seizes that guy's talent and gives it to the one who had ten talents and rebukes the man, tossing him out into the street where there will be, as he says, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Just a horrible image of of despair and violence. So what's going on? What was wrong with this third guy's prudent mattress approach? You know, I used to work in the investment field years ago, and, and I'll tell you, I could get fired for being too aggressive with someone's money and risk too much of it, but I was never going to get fired for being overly conservative and and overly prudent with my client's money. So how do we make sense of the story here in Matthew 25? Well, you got to remember that old saying, uh, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Good Good little saying to remember. As we've talked about the parables, one of the key things I've been trying to drive home is that the context of the parable is critical to our understanding of the parable. Jesus didn't tell these stories in a vacuum. There was something that prompted the telling of the story, and it's the same with this parable as with the others. And if we take a step back in chapters 24 to 25, these chapters in Matthew record Jesus' final teaching to the disciples. You can think of Matthew 24 and 25 as Jesus' long kind of farewell sermon to the disciples. And the point 
of this sermon is that the end is going to come swiftly. Judgment will be final, so you better be prepared. That's pretty much the thrust of 24 and 25. We read in 24, 36, but concerning the day and the hour, what does Jesus says? He says, well, no one knows. 24, 42, therefore, if that's the case, stay awake, be prepared, be ready. You have the parable of the, of the ten virgins pressing home that point. 24, 44, therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect him. So that's the thrust of the teaching. And then to drive that home, there are three parables, all highlighting different aspects of that teaching. You have the faithful and wise servant in 24, 45. Uh, I wrote my references wrong. The faithful and wise servant there beginning um, in uh, 45 through 51. And then you have the, our parable, the, uh, rather the parable of the ten virgins, 25, 1 through 13. Then you have our parable in, in 25, 14 and following. And then what unites these three parables, right, it's this theme of, of a long delay, of an unexpected return, a call to judgment, and a final division. You sort of see those same themes playing out in all the parables. And lest we miss it, the themes of these parables are then going to be summarized in that final parable he tells of the final judgment with the sheep and with the goats. So in that sense, the context of these parables is like a lens that sort of focuses in, and it gives us clarity into what Jesus is trying to communicate here. And I think he's trying to communicate two basic points. Two basic points to our message this morning, and the first is this. It's really, the first point is just a statement of fact, and that's that Jesus divides. That's the first point. Statement of fact, Jesus divides. Now, we don't often like to think about Jesus this way. We like to think about Jesus as sort of the consummate uniter, you know, some, some ancient virgin, virgin or rather, of, uh, version of George Washington, you know, who comes and he unites these splintered colonies and throws off sort of British oppression. And we think of Jesus in much the same way. He unites Jews and Gentiles together, all under the beneficent reign and rule of God, and that's what Jesus has come to do. But when you read the Bible, you actually come to find that Jesus is actually a deeply divisive figure. You know, by the end of the Gospels, it seems nearly everybody wants this guy dead. All right, so in our parable, I think it's right to understand this master of the house is Jesus. He is the, that good authority figure in all the parables in 24 and 25. And when he returns, one thing we see is that Jesus divides, right? Some receive that invitation to share in the master's blessing, whereas others receive condemnation. That's what that weeping and gnashing of teeth is meant to convey. It's always used in Matthew as this picture of God's eternal judgment on those who don't believe. In short, Jesus is saying some will be welcomed into heaven, whereas others will be cast into hell. Now, I recognize the very mention of heaven and hell. It, it immediately causes some of us, we shift uncomfortably in our seats. It grates against all of our modern sensibilities. And the temptation is going to be to ignore it or to tiptoe around it, to kind of replace the very objective and, and binary language of Jesus with more subjective notions. And this shouldn't come as any surprise because for to admit there's judgment and to admit there's division is to admit that actually all of us one day are finally accountable to God. 
we're accountable to someone else, we're actually liable for how we've chosen to live. And now Jesus is saying today we're living in that period where the master is away. We're in that period where he's away. And, and given his delay, the, the temptation is to presume that he actually won't return. And so what do we do? We go about our days. We go about consuming our lives with just the stuff of our daily lives, the busyness of it. We assume that will continue on indefinitely. But friend, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. One day, Christ is saying he's going to return. And on that day, he's actually going to settle accounts. And this life that you may have presumed upon, that might just continue on indefinitely, he's going to say that's going to come to a sudden and a swift and a final end. Though not immediate, it is imminent, and it will come, he says, when we least expect it. So are you prepared for that day? Are you prepared for that day? And, And what would it even look like? for you to be prepared for that day. You know, as evangelicals, we tend to talk about, you know, salvation. I even prayed about salvation by, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And yet we recognize that most every other major world religion doesn't talk about salvation by God's grace, but salvation through works, salvation through human effort. Do these things, and you can become a sufficiently good Muslim or Catholic or fill in the blank. But yet there's actually a large population of people that simply assume salvation by death. Salvation by death. There's no judgment. There's no division. One merely has to die in order to enter that better place, however they want to define what that place might be. And yet Jesus is unequivocally clear that when he returns, he will assess and divide, and not all will receive that commendation of well done, good and faithful servant. It's hard teaching, and yet it is inescapably what Jesus is teaching here. Though difficult and sobering, I hope you actually see there's, there's some hope in a real sense in which this judgment is actually good news. I mean, because think about it. If there's no judgment, if all the wrongs of this world aren't finally made right, then this life is actually a, a pitiable and hellish life. And if there's never any justice for the wrongs committed, then we're either going to be driven to despair or we're going to be driven to take vengeance into our own hands. No, we actually, we need the prospect of judgment. It's why we care so much justice about the court system, about the nomination, for example, of Merrick Garland. We care about those things because we care about justice, and we want God to be just. We want him to. We need a judge. We simply can't accept when that judge is Jesus, and he turns his gaze upon us. So if, you're, if you've come this morning and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I just want to encourage you to stop for a moment. Just think through some of these things. Think about what actually Jesus is teaching. I mean, consider for you what it would mean if you were actually accountable to this Jesus. You know, would your slate be clean? Or would you have a rap sheet of both public and private offenses that would be exceedingly long? You know, some significant, some a little less significant. The reality is we all have our rap sheets, every single one of us, and we're all marching inexorably toward that courthouse, and we have rap sheet in hand, and there is nothing we can do about it. 
We desperately need to have it cleared by the judge, but that can only happen when that judge steps off the bench and takes that guilty verdict for us. And friends, that's what the cross is all about. It's about God in Jesus stepping off the throne, coming down, living perfectly, following his Father's commands, living that life that we would not live, and then bearing on the cross our rap sheets, bearing our guilt and our sin and our shame so that one day we wouldn't have to. That's how God has loved us in Christ. And you can have that rap sheet wiped clean if you would turn from your sin, trusting in Christ, repenting, and believing that in Christ he can forgive and only he can forgive. And you can know That commendation one day of well done, good and faithful servant. Because we'll all stand before the Lord one day. We'll all have to give an account. And in Christ, by trusting in him, you can know that commendation. That commendation doesn't come just by your good works. It doesn't come merely through death. It comes by repenting, trusting, and believing in Christ. Friends, Jesus divides. Right, that much is inescapable as you read through this parable, the other parables that surround it. But at its heart, this parable isn't simply making a statement. It's actually leaving us with a question. It's leaving us with a question. Yes, Jesus divides, but point two, I think, here's the question he wants to press upon you. Point two, is your life multiplied? Is your life, is it, is it being multiplied You could say this is a parable. It's all about math. It's about division. It's about multiplication. And it's that multiplication factor that Jesus leaves out there for us. My my friends, Jesus actually addressed this parable to his own disciples, to those that claimed to follow him. It's not directed first at those outside the church. It's directed at those within the church, to you and me who claim the name of Christ. And it's asking us that unsettling question, what's your life's return on investment? That's what it's asking. What's your life's return on investment? The stewardship of the gospel that God has given to you. What's the return on that stewardship? You know, I gather growing up, maybe in college, you came across uh, kids known as trust fund babies. You know, maybe granddad left them some kind of generation-skipping trust, or, or maybe they didn't have a trust, but they grew up as if they were the beneficiaries of some trust. So he was the kid at 16 who had that nice brand-new Land Rover, and she was the one who was always dressed in the fanciest clothes. He had that, you know, swank apartment in the nice area of the city. She would vacation in Paris. These were the friends, you know, you may have made fun of, but you only really did because you were envious, because you're like, man, wow, it would be great to be blessed like that. Well, I hope you realize, friends, that we are all trust fund babies if we're in Christ. Every single one of us. You, if you are in Christ, you also are a trust fund baby and with a wealth of the master that far exceeds anything any of us can know in this life. We have that privilege. We have that opportunity. In Christ, we're given these opportunities and privileges of enormous trust. And notice, the story turns, it turns on how these servants made use of that trust. How did they make use of these opportunities and blessings? Did they put them to work while the master was away? 
You see, the parable is more about responsibility than it is about natural endowment. Notice the talents don't represent individual abilities. The talents don't represent individual abilities. They're rather, remember, notice there, they're rather allocated on the basis of ability. On the basis of ability, according to his ability, verse 15. So they don't represent individual abilities and aptitudes. They represent rather the responsibilities and the opportunities of the kingdom of heaven. And two sought to make most of these opportunities, whereas one sort of buried it and squandered it. So why did this last servant, why did he bury it? Why did he hide it under a bushel, so to speak, and not let its light shine? Well, if we look down here in verse 24 and 25, unlike the first two servants, notice the third servant takes this opportunity to launch into a little speech. There's a little clue to us that perhaps he's feeling some need to defend himself, to justify his own inaction. He says he was afraid because his master was hard. He even implies his master is a bit unscrupulous in his business dealings. But of course, this characterization of the master doesn't at all correspond to how the master's treated the first two servants. And of course, the first two servants aren't responding and taking the same opinion of the master as this last guy did. I think more likely this this is really an excuse. It's a diversion. You know, perhaps this third servant was upset that he didn't get as much entrusted to him as the first two servants. Perhaps he resented his master at some level, and you know what? Burying it in the ground was like sticking it to the man. Maybe that's what he was doing. But the master, notice the master sees right through it. Notice how he turns in verses 26 and 27, he turns the servant's words back against him. He says, okay, let's assume what you say about me is true, that I'm hard and I'm, I'm unforgiving, etc. Well, shouldn't you then at a minimum have put my money on deposit so I'd receive it back with interest? He's saying, listen, servant, the real issue isn't that I'm hard. It's not even that you're afraid. That's all a smokescreen. And he calls him out, and he says, you are wicked and slothful. Like all along, that third servant may have been thinking something like this. Listen, investing, trading requires a lot of work, planning, oversight, no doubt, a number of sleepless nights. And listen, my opportunities are are limited. After all, I only got one talent. Those other guys... He got two, he got five, I only got one. I mean, what reasonably can I do with my one talent? So I'll just, I'll just bury it. I'll bury it when I'm master. He'll get what is his, and I can bury it, and I can forget about it, and I can go on doing other things, things that I enjoy. I can go about my own interests, not just those interests that will better my master. That's part of some of the thought process likely going on in this third servant's <clears throat> in his mind. And his failure to put this talent to work, well, it's a dereliction of duty. He was called to put it to work, but he wouldn't do it. You know, I lived in Kentucky for a while, and I learned a, a farming expression that, that money is like manure. So it's no good if left in a heap, you have to spread it about for it to do good. Right? But that's what this guy doesn't do. He doesn't spread it about He wouldn't work with the opportunity. He just buried it in a heap in the ground. And I think what Jesus is doing with this parable is he's he's going at a number of misconceptions that the disciples would have had and that often we have as disciples of Jesus Christ about Christianity. So to, to help bring some of these out, let me ask you a few questions. I wonder first, does the uncertainty 
surrounding Christ's return, does that uncertainty lead you to a spiritual complacency? Does the uncertainty of Christ's return lead you to a spiritual complacency? Jesus is saying, listen, beware of the third servant. Jesus' focus here is not so much on the timing of Christ's kingdom, it's on the character of those awaiting its arrival. And it's easy, it's really easy to drift into a kind of spiritual slumber. You know, the demands of daily life, they lull us into a sense that this life is all there is. The temptations of our daily life whisper to us, listen, there's always tomorrow. Always tomorrow to get serious about your walk with Christ. Always tomorrow to actually take that sin seriously. To, to look for a church, to start reading your Bible, to start praying. Always another day where you can begin to pick up these practices and habits. And yet Jesus says it's precisely because we don't know the day or the hour that we're called to be ready, to be prepared, to be awake. You know, Guy Wilcox just joined us on staff as a PA a number of weeks ago, and he happened to start as a PA about two weeks before his wife was due with their second child. And uh, it was interesting to observe him in those, in those two weeks because he would go about, he'd go about all of his normal daily duties, he would get his tasks done, but that phone was glued to his hip. And every time it buzzed, he'd pull it out quickly, whether or not we were in a staff meeting in the car, because he was waiting to see if it was Carolyn saying, hey, listen, honey, time to get home because we're about to have a baby. There was a sense of joy a sense of anticipation, a longing to meet this child that they had so long waited to meet. Well, that's exactly, Jesus saying, how it ought to be with us as we uh, prepare to meet the Lord. Christ's coming shouldn't cause us to abandon all of our daily duties, and yet, nonetheless, it should affect all that we do. It should affect all that we do. For while those duties are important, they are not ultimate. We do it all, whether we manage a business or whether or not we manage a home, with a sense of expectation, of anticipation as we prepare to meet our Savior. So beware that the uncertainty of Christ's return, beware and, and, and watch that it doesn't lead you into some kind of spiritual complacency. I think the second question Jesus would ask is, is are you content with the Christianity of mere profession? Could you be content this morning with the Christianity of mere profession? If so, he's saying beware again of that third servant. Because that third servant could claim his allegiance to his master, but the very fact that he wasn't willing to work for his master revealed actually his true loyalties were only to him. Similarly, there are many of us, some of us, I don't want to say many of us, I can't even say that. There are some people out there, maybe some in this room, some who have made, you know, responded to an invitation some who have made a profession, even expressed great affection for the Lord, and yet there's been no lasting alteration to the life. Well, if that's the case, Jesus is asking you, okay, well, you recognize that's, that's actually not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity multiplies. It isn't content merely with expressing a word. It goes out. Recall Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7. It's not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, that will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying, beware of a Christianity that is merely about profession. Well, third question, do you define success? How do you define success in the Christian life? Is it merely the avoidance of particular sins, or do you define success as the headlong pursuit of holiness? 
success in the Christian life? Is it merely the avoidance of particular sins, or is it the headlong pursuit of holiness? Again, Jesus is saying, beware of the third servant, because I think there's a natural tendency amongst all of us is we lift, list off those very serious vices, and then we go about and we pat ourselves on the back because we've not committed any of those vices. And just as a note, when you're tempted to pat yourself on the back, there may be a divine reason why the one place you can't reach is actually right back there in the center of your back. All right, but Jesus, just notice, he doesn't define Christianity in terms of negatives about what one doesn't do. So when we say, look, Lord, I, I haven't abused my authority at work. I haven't been unfaithful to my spouse. I haven't physically harmed my kids. What we're really saying is, Master, I buried your talent in the ground. You can have it back. That's effectively what we're saying. But we read in 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, Peter says, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You know, it's one thing to avoid sin. It's another thing, and often a harder thing, to proactively pursue others, to be a blessing to them. And yet that's what we're called to do, to to labor for the kingdom, to be a blessing to others. Like a fourth question we could ask, you know, how does your risk meter sort of the risk meter of your Christianity, what does that read? What does that risk meter of your Christianity read? Jesus, again, saying, beware of the third servant, because risk is at the heart of discipleship. I hope you understand there is simply no safe way to follow Jesus. There's just no safe way to follow him. Can you say, therefore, can you say there's anything you've risked for Christ? Perhaps the reputation of a boss as you sought, sought to share the gospel Is there a friendship where the fear of anger or rejection is actually preventing you from speaking in to that friend's life? Have you risked a little bit of financial cushion so you can be a greater blessing to the budget of this church or perhaps to to others, others outside this body, others who serve on the mission field? You know, my wife and I took the kids a little while back to a concert, and right in front of us, it was a Jeremy Camp concert, and right in front of us was a guy wearing a shirt, and on the back it read, live so that the preacher won't have to lie at your funeral. And it stuck with me. Now, just, I hope preachers never lie at funerals, but you know, you get the point. Live with this kind of risk in mind, this kind of risk at heart. And if, you, if, if the risk meter of your Christianity if it's sort of baseline zero, you know, if, it's, if that needle isn't ticking up at all, well, let that be a warning that you may be a much closer friend of that third servant than you realize. A fifth and final question. I wonder, does the giftedness of others, does that lead you to become lazy? Does that breed envy in you? Does the gifting of others, does it lead you to become lazy or breed envy in you? Jesus would again say, beware of this third servant. God's goal isn't equality. We saw that even in the parable last week. He gifts us differently. He gifts us with differing degrees of abilities, which means there's always going to be someone who possesses what we don't. There's always going to be a better dad, a better mom, a better executive, a better writer, a better communicator, a better artist, a better musician. Just whatever it is that you value, someone is better, I promise. That's the way it is in this life. And if you're really certain that that's not the case, there's always Jesus to settle it. All right? So there's always someone better. And that reality can cause two different responses for us. I think one thing it can do is it can lead us 
into this kind of sloth and laziness that the master addresses. Because we don't possess the gifts that another has, we give up. We say, listen, I don't have that much to contribute. I don't have that much to offer. It doesn't really matter. And we give up. But friend, if that's your temptation, God doesn't waste talent. When he created you, when he called you, he gifted you, and he wasn't wasting any of those gifts, he certainly wasn't going to be wasting a single drop of his son's precious blood. No, he blesses. You know, my son was even reminding me last night from 1 Corinthians 12 that every member of the body is critical. And those members that we often esteem as weaker, as capable of less, Paul calls them in 1 Corinthians 12, he calls them indispensable. He calls those parts of the body that seem to be weaker, possess less. He says they are in fact indispensable. And if you are in Christ, that's God's assessment of you. Whatever you think your abilities are, he says indispensable. Indispensable to the well-functioning body of Christ. Despite your age, despite your little you know, liabilities, despite whatever it might be, limitations and weaknesses, God's assessment is indispensable. Do you believe that? Do you act like that's the case? Do you labor like that's the case? If he's made you and if he's redeemed you, then he certainly has a purpose for you. And you may feel like those contributions are small, but you can't see what God sees. None of us sees what he sees. God loves to do, take really ordinary people and do extraordinary things. And when we give up, we reveal how we've allowed fear to replace faith. And we act like that third servant. But I think the apparent poverty of our gifts in comparison, I said, yeah, it's sloth, it can breed, but also envy. It can breed envy. You know, we become jealous of what others have that we don't. But when you're tempted to envy what another Christian brother or sister possesses, just remember this parable. This parable turns, it turns on responsibility, not on natural endowment. The parable turns upon responsibility. Notice, this is critical. The man who has two talents and doubled those talents. He had two. He earned two. He didn't earn five. He earned two. Was his commendation any less than the one who earned five? Exactly the same commendation. He entered into the joy of his master, and his master welcomed into the full blessing of that kingdom in exactly the same way that that person who had five talents and earned five more. It turns on responsibility. What valued by God is not so much our quantitative accomplishments. What, what he values is the fidelity of our own Christian commitment. That's what he values. What did we make of the opportunities we were presented? So stop worrying about what another has that you don't have. Be faithful to that which he's entrusted to you. Right? It's not about the recognition in this life. It's about the commendation in the next. And we can be confident if we are faithful, we will hear those blessed words from our Savior. And it's a warning to also beware of boasting of what you may have that another doesn't have, to whom much has been given, much more will be required. Really, sometimes the great gifting in its own way creates challenges, even curses at times. The truth is, whether it's one talent or five, 
All of us, if we are in Christ, we're given an enormous stewardship. We possess the mysteries of the gospel, and we're called to bring the wealth of that gospel, the eternal blessedness of that gospel, to know Christ, to know God face to face, our creator, our redeemer. We're we're called to bring that to a lost world. So ask yourself this morning, what do you really want out of life? What do you really want out of life? You know, do you want a gracious king? Or are you just seeking a comfortable life? What does your calendar say? What does your checkbook say about what you desire out of life? My friend, don't labor after that which is passing away. Pour yourself into that which is eternal, like people. So you want to think practically, what does it look like to labor, to invest, to take the talents and to make something on them? Invest in that which lasts, invest in people. Pour yourself into a discipling relationship. Listen, we don't get to heaven on our own. We need others. We need a local church, and we need others in our lives. So open up your life. Get together with someone. Read the Bible. Read a Christian book. Talk openly about your sin. Don't hide it. We're all a mess. We know that. So be honest about it. Share it. And then pray with one another and see what God might do. That's the kind of community that we need to have, that kind of investment pouring into one another's lives and souls. Discipling relationships, they're simply how we help one another get to heaven. Similarly, invest yourselves in the lives of non-Christians. Listen, non-Christians, they don't become Christians unless someone loves them enough to get to know them and share the gospel with them. Can it be hard? Of course it can. Will it be awkward? Probably, probably for you, certainly probably for them too. Right? Those things can be hard. But to state the obvious, you can't reach non-Christians if you don't have any relationships with non-Christians. So do you invite neighbors into your home? When was the last time you, know, you shared the gospel with someone? And if you can't remember when that was, Well, just do this simple thing. Just make it a habit. Every day, I'm going to pray for an opportunity to share the gospel with so-and-so. Just start praying every day that simple prayer, and you will be amazed at how the Lord answers prayers like that. All of us, we labor as we live for Christ. We do it in those ways. We do it in many of the seemingly mundane day-to-day aspects of life. We see it in a mom who invests a few extra minutes to read her young child a Bible story. We see it in a dad who's willing to stop and put down the remote and turn off the TV and reach out to his wife, ask her how she's doing spiritually, actually take some time to to pray with her. It's in a single guy willing to serve in nursery so that two exhausted parents can come and hear a message and be blessed with fellowship and community. It's in a single woman being willing to give up a Friday night so she can be a blessing to a young family in need. It's the family that's exhausted on Sunday afternoon, and yet they think, it's really good to gather with God's people to pray, to bear one another's burdens and sorrows, and so they decide to come back on Sunday night and prioritize that. All little ways that we labor for the kingdom. We show our hopes not in this world, but in the next. And there's nothing especially novel or exciting about those things. And I know many of you are doing those very things. So my encouragement is to be persevere, continue in them, in your prayer, in your own holiness, Because living for the kingdom looks just like that. Each and every day, laboring step by step for Christ. And before long, we need to have those words in the back of our head. Before long, we'll hear them, well done, good and faithful servant. And the exhaustion and the sacrifice in that day will be imminently worth it. 
So press on. Be like a spiritual tradesman for the kingdom. If you're discouraged, if you're discouraged over what your heart values and wants, if you're discouraged over what apparent multiplication and what little there is in your own life, just remember your confidence. It's not finally in yourself. It's in that servant, Jesus Christ, that master who is perfectly faithful. So persevere as you rest in him. You will see your master soon enough. All right, this morning, Jesus, he's warned us. He's warned us of division tomorrow. And so what does he do? He actually calls us to multiplication today. Loving our king means practically laboring for his kingdom. All right, so what do we we think then of that proverbial mattress stuffer? You know, a number I read uh, a while back, I read about a mom, and she really wanted to encourage her elderly mother. And her elderly mother had this really old bed. And so she surprised her by buying her a new mattress. And the, the folks came, and they delivered the new mattress, and they took the old one out. And now this old, lumpy thing had been replaced with this nice, clean, firm, and yet soft mattress. But when the elderly mother returned, she was aghast. She looked at her daughter and she said, what have you done? Where's my mattress? My daughter's like, where's your mattress? I don't know. I mean, they took it away. What's what's the big deal? Well, can you guess what happened? Yeah, she'd invested her whole life savings in that lumpy old mattress. Literally, she'd put a million dollars in that mattress. True story. And they never found it. Someone may have found it. She never found it. Don't be that proverbial mattress stuffer. He's like, be a venture capitalist kind of Christian. That's what Christ is calling us to. You know, a spiritual tradesman living in a bold and enterprising manner. For if you bury that talent, if you take that opportunity, that responsibility, if you bury it in the ground for your own safekeeping, saying, you know what, I'll get around to making the most of it. I'll have an opportunity tomorrow. There are no guarantees. For like the old woman and her mattress, right? It could be taken when you least expect it. Let's pray together. Father, we pray and we pray that we take to heart the words of this parable. Father, we pray that we would feel a conviction if there are ways in which we've been passive in our walk. Lord, we know that by our labors we don't earn our way into the kingdom. And yet, if we love you and if we cherish you, though it's hard, it should often be our delight to serve you. And Lord, we pray that that would be the case among us, among us as individuals, among us as a body. We pray that we would be those who serve happily and joyfully because we know that you are worthy of it all. And we long for that commendation of well done, good and faithful servant. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.